Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to Cardioscripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Our goal at Cardioscripts is to keep you up to date by interviewing cardiology experts across the country. In today's episode, we hear from Barbara Wiggins talking about the ischemia trial with Liz. We hope you enjoy. Today on Cardioscripts, I am excited to have Dr. Barbara Wiggins here to talk about the ischemia trial. Dr. Barbara Wiggins received her Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy from St. Louis College of Pharmacy. She then went on to receive her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Virginia Commonwealth University, the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. And she is currently a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology at the Medical University of South Carolina. And we're excited to have you on today, Barbara, um, to talk about ischemia. Happy to be here. So the ischemia trial, the full name is the International Study of Comparative Health Effectiveness with Medical and Invasive Approaches. And this trial was presented at the AHA meeting in November of 2019. The question investigators were trying to answer was in our patients with stable ischemic heart disease, who are found to have at least moderate ischemia on a stress test. Is there a difference in outcomes in those who undergo an invasive strategy or a conservative approach? So this was a randomized parallel trial and they included patients who are 21 years or older and had moderate or severe ischemia. They excluded patients who were NYHA classes three to four, an ejection fraction of less than 35%, if they had unacceptable angina despite medical therapy, if they've had an acute coronary syndrome event within two months, or if they had received PCI or cabbage within a year, if they had an EGFR less than 30 or were on dialysis, or 50% stenosis in an unprotective left main. Patients were randomized to the invasive approach, which was catheterization with revascularization as appropriate and optimal medical therapy, versus a conservative approach, which was optimal medical therapy on its own. And their primary endpoint was this composite of time to cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, or MI, hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, or resuscitated cardiac arrest. All components of the composite endpoint were adjudicated. They ended up enrolling about 5,100 participants and they were randomized with a medium follow-up time of 3.3 years. Patients were around 64 years old, about 77% were male, and 42% with diabetes. The median ejection fraction was 60%. The median systolic and diastolic blood pressures were 130 and 77 millimeters of mercury, respectively, and the median LDL was 83. 90% had a history of angina, 29% had angina that began or became more frequent over the previous three months. Now, 54% were found to have severe baseline inducible ischemia, 33% were moderate, and 12% had mild to none. So 95% were on a statin, and of those on a statin, 40% of those were on a high-intensity statin, 66% were on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, 96% on aspirin, about 80% on a beta blocker, 
and 88% of patients included did not smoke. They found that the LDL was decreased from baseline of 83 to 65. At the last visit, about 59% of patients had an LDL of less than 70 and were on a statin, and about 77% of patients were at goal with a systolic blood pressure of less than 140 millimeters of mercury. In terms of those who underwent um, the invasive approach, 20% did not have revascularization, two-thirds were found to have insignificant disease on coronary angiogram, and one-third found to have extensive disease that was unsuitable for any revascularization mode. 74% received PCI, and 93% of those with successful stents or had a successful stent placed, and of those, 98% were drug-eluting stents, and 26% received cabbage. In terms of the primary outcome, it occurred in 13.3% of those in the invasive arm and 15.5% of those in the medical arm. They did not find a difference in the primary outcome or when they looked at death between the two groups, but of note, they did find a difference in the reduction of hospitalization for unstable angina. And so Barbara, listening to all of that and, and in all of your experience, what are your overall thoughts about the ischemia trial? Well, I think in general, the results are really not terribly surprising to me. Um, you know, we've been down this road before with prior trials, specifically the COURAGE trial. It sort of demonstrated the same, the same result. And I think the intent here was to look at a more higher-risk um, patient population in the ischemia trial. But, you know, at the end of the day, when we try to assess patients for whether or not they need to undergo PCI versus medical management, I think this aligns itself with, you know, how we would generally treat those patients. And looking at the inclusions on these patients who are really symptomatic and had a lot of intolerable angina were not included here. So, you know, looking at symptomatology, a number of these patients were maybe class one, class two angina. That was the majority of these patients. So most of them were really not terribly symptomatic. They were able to be optimized on medical therapy. So I think, you know, they did fairly well without intervention. You mentioned the COURAGE trial. And so I guess if you could elaborate just a little bit more. So with COURAGE previously being published, what do you feel like the ischemia trial really adds to our overall understanding of managing this population? Well, I think it kind of validates it to some degree. Um, you know, there was some skepticism, I think, with COURAGE. Um, you know, it is an older trial. So, you know, optimal medical therapy techniques change, stents change, um, our medication therapies and in trying to maximize lifestyle modifications more aggressively. You know, all those things certainly could have played a part. And, and you always wonder how practice changes if the outcomes are the same. And then, you know, going into the ischemia trial, trying to sort of do that again with patients that are a little bit more higher risk with in terms of stable angina with the type of lesions that they actually have. What are your thoughts on, on the med regimens patients were on at baseline? Does this algorithm used to manage these patients meet the one you might use, say, in the real world? You mean in terms of the, um, the number of these patients that are on all these optimal medical treatments? Right. No, I think so. It's kind of surprising that only 41% were on high-intensity statin. It'd be interesting to know why the variance there. Was there some intolerability? Why only 41% were on high-intensity? The ACE inhibitors, 
I think given the fact that they didn't include patients with low ejection fractions, I don't think that's terribly impressive that it's only 66%, although a big majority of these patients were hypertensive. So it certainly um, maybe would have been a little bit higher. But I think, you know, in terms of everything else, I think it's, you know, it's fairly realistic to think that, that these patients would be continued on this type of therapy for a long period of time. I wanted to ask you about some of the controversy that was talked about even before the ischemia trial came out. So, so one thing I just wanted to get your thoughts on were the expansion of the primary endpoints to include softer endpoints. So initially, they were just going to assess cardiovascular death and myocardial infarction. But then they, they expanded it, I think it was somewhere around four or five years down the road to include resuscitated cardiac arrest, but then the really softer endpoints of hospitalization for unstable angina or hospitalization for heart failure. So just your thoughts on that expansion and how that may have potentially impacted the results and just the extrapolation to, to these patients. Well, they're probably just trying to include more patients into the study. Um, I think that's probably one of the things, I mean, what's one of the things I also found interesting is that, you know, uh, almost 15% of the patients that were included had mild to no ischemia, um, inducible ischemia at all. So I actually found that very interesting. And could that have skewed the results? Possibly. And there's no doubt that it may have. So, you know, I think they're just trying, they were trying to really incorporate more patients into the trial, perhaps, to try and get a more global assessment of this population. I, without knowing their, their full insight, it's difficult for me to speculate too much. Yeah, and I think um, one of my like questions is just when we're having these conversations like as a team going the more invasive route versus do we think this patient's a candidate just for optimal uh, medical therapy, um, the patients represented in ischemia. So initially it was uh, 10% ischemia, but I think they actually change the inclusion criteria and how they assessed it um, a little later on down the line to down to 5%. And so, mm-hmm. so I think I think that raises some questions as well when we're having these discussions in terms of who, you know, we wanted to include in ischemia and who we actually ended up um, seeing included ultimately. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I did see that it, it was dropped down to 5%. So Yes. No, I agree. It's always a question about really what were we trying to do there. So Barbara, we're, we're talking about the ischemia trial and, and some may be asking uh, as pharmacists, why is it important for us to understand this trial and what are the implications for pharmacy practice? We as pharmacists oftentimes, you know, are the ones that really sit down with these patients and go over these medications. And the patients may be wondering, well, you know, why can't I just go for a a cath? Why can't I just go for a procedure? And it's not uncommon for us to get those types of questions as pharmacists. And being able to sort of relay the information from trial data to the patient and demonstrating that, you know, if you really optimize medical management, you can avoid potentially going down an invasive strategy for a period of time. And remember that invasive strategies are not risk-free. And so we have to weigh the risk versus benefit. And at this time, based on what the data has shown, if you are stable and you're not having progressive symptoms, that optimizing your medications is really the best route for you at this time. Do you have any final thoughts, anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to include in the discussion? And then just any clinical pearls or, or takeaways for us to get from ischemia 
Well, I think it's just, you know, kind of important to realize what the population was that was studied. I mean, these were not acute coronary syndrome type patients. So, you know, these are not the patients that I see every day in my, in my unit on my floor. These are patients that, these are not patients that, let's say, come to the cath lab or have an abnormal stress test that's highly abnormal and go for PCI. That's not the patient that's included in this study either. So I think it's a select group of patients that really we need to look at in, in terms of trying to optimize medical therapy overall. And just realizing, you know, one of the other interesting things about this study, and though it's not pharmacy related, was the, um, the utilization of the CT angiography as well. So utilizing that more as a non-invasive strategy for evaluating these patients, and that may help us cut down on the number of invasive procedures as well. Some other things down the road, you know, once we can get the full, full all the data in terms of is there a certain group of patients that fared better? Um, you know, where was the where was the LDL in those patients um, who fared better? Where was the blood pressure reduction? Did those patients have more ischemia? Where did they end up versus the others that weren't as bad in terms of ischemia? So I think there's there's still some unanswered questions. You know, where are we going to be several years down the road in these patients too, even longer term than what the trial exceeded as well. So I think there's just, you know, there's still some unanswered questions, but it certainly provokes a lot of discussion um, when we talk about managing patients. So I think that's always a good thing to have that, that dialogue in terms of seeing where our patients actually fit in and really how we should manage them in terms of awful medical therapy versus an invasive strategy, as is in this case, is the question they tried to answer. Well, Barbara, on behalf of Tracy and I, We'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us on CardioScripts. Our next episode will feature Dr. Karen McConnell discussing chlorthalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide for the treatment of hypertension. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.